Hi, my name is Shalise, and I'm in year 10. I'll be doing the second Bible reading, which comes from Hebrews chapter 1. You can follow along in the Pew Bibles or on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times, and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received, it's just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Thanks, Charlize, and thanks to all the youth. Hasn't it been a joy to see all of our young people involved with our service, and, and praying and reading the Bible, singing, to music, interviews, kids talk, welcoming, supper, morning tea, everything. It's been a great joy to see, hasn't it? So I'm sure uh, they'd appreciate if you gave them a, a word of encouragement afterwards, as I'm sure you are encouraged by them. Are we going to hear from Hebrews 1 now? If you're an outline person, you can find an outline in your handout, so that might be helpful for you in following along. And it'd be good if you could keep your Bible open as well. We want to um, see what it has to say to us, so do keep it open. But as we begin, I might pray, so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Thank you also for your son, Jesus, in whom we can see and know you perfectly. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever found yourself wondering, is it worth it? Now, that's what I used to think in the midst of my pre-season training for football. Now, uh, football, of course, is a winter sport, but what you do in the summertime is you do the pre-season training. That's the opportunity to get fit and strong and work on your skills. And let me tell you, pre-season training is the worst. It is the worst. And uh, that's because it involves running 
and then some more running, then a bit more running, then maybe a little bit of skills work, then some more running, and then to close off a session, some more running. I reckon I'd usually do 10 to 15 kilometers worth of running each night. On top of that, we also had a team rule where if you missed a target with your kick, you had to stop and do 10 push-ups. Uh, the problem was uh, accuracy of kicking wasn't my strong suit, especially when I had legs that felt like lead after all those kilometers run. And so my nights typically looked like this. Miss a kick, do 10 push-ups. Miss a kick, do 10 push-ups. Miss a kick, do 10 push-ups. In fact, I'd often miss so many kicks in a night that I'd end up doing more than 100 push-ups each night. And to top all of that off, all of that was done, all of the 10 to 15 kilometers of running, 100 plus push-ups, it was all done in summer, which means it's done in 30 plus degrees heat, degree heat. And so as my lungs ached, as the sweat poured down my face, as my arms felt like they were gonna fall off, as my skin burned and blistered in the hot summer sun, I often found myself wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I wonder, have you ever found yourself thinking that? When you're in the midst of studying for an exam and your neck ached, hunched over the notes, were you wondering, is it worth it? Or when you were up at the crack of dawn to get on a packed train to head into a long day of work, another day amongst, amongst hundreds of other work days for the year, did you find yourself wondering, is it worth it? See, sometimes in life, we do find ourselves asking that question. And today, we're starting our series in the book of Hebrews. And at its heart, our passage today, but also the whole book of Hebrews, is all about answering that question, is it worth it? Now, the book itself was probably actually a sermon rather than a letter. We don't know who it was by, but we do know who it was to. It was to Christians of Jewish background who are now coming under great pressure to go back to their Jewish foundation. Pressure from family uh, to go back to the synagogue where all of their siblings and cousins were, to the religion of their ancestors, but also pressure from just simply being a Jew and seeing what, or having formerly been a Jew and seeing how impressive that was. So you've got to remember they had the temple in Jerusalem that was covered in marble, that had gold, uh, that had all these sacrifices and and priests, and they'd left all of that spectacular religion behind for a religion that seemed so unimpressive. And so they faced the pressure to go back to that spectacularness. They also had pressure from the persecution they faced. It was perfectly legal to be a Jew. That was an approved religion. But it was not legal to be a Christian. That was not an approved official religion. And so the specter of the roaring lions in the Colosseum was always hanging over their heads, putting pressure on them to abandon their faith and go back to their Jewish foundations. And so with all of that, you can just imagine the pressure they faced daily as they go for a walk down the street and they bump into their mum. And she says, come back to the synagogue. Your brother and sister are there. They miss you. I miss you. I love you. Come back. Then they keep walking on their way to church. And as they do, they go past the temple where there's gold and marble, where they can see the smoke going up from the burnt sacrifices. And it's extremely impressive. As they then continue a little bit further and they walk past the arena, and as they do, they can hear the crowd baying for blood. They can hear the lions roaring as fellow Christians are put to death. And so you can just imagine, they find themselves wondering, is it worth it? Is being a Christian worth all of that? 
Or should I just go back to my old ways? And I wonder, have you ever felt like that? If you're a Christian, have you ever wondered to yourself, is it worth it? Not being able to go and play sport on Sunday or attend a birthday party because I've got to go to church instead, is it worth it? Devoting my time and my money and my lifestyle to serving God instead of for myself, is it worth it? Or maybe you're not yet a Christian, but you're considering it. You've seen there's lots of good things about Christianity, but you've also realized there's a cost. You may have to stop doing certain things you're doing now or start doing certain things you've never done before. Maybe you're wondering whether it will impact on your relationship with your non-Christian family and friends. And so you're wondering to yourself, well, is it worth it? The letter to the Hebrews is written so that you know it is worth it. It is worth it. And today's passage shows that by focusing on Jesus. It doesn't start with an exhortation or a command. It doesn't start with a do this or do that. It simply starts by setting our eyes on Jesus. And it does that to show us not that Jesus is better, but that Jesus is best. He's not simply a better option than what we had before, but rather he is the supreme option. And it's when our hearts are captured by the supremeness of the Son, that is when we realize it is worth it. It is worth everything we face because we get to know Jesus. And so our passage shows us two reasons why it is worth it. It is worth it because Jesus is the final word of God. And it is worth it because he is better than the angels. And so firstly, firstly, it's worth it because Jesus is the final word of God. Verse 1 tells us that God has spoken in other ways in the past. Have a look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. See, in the past, the process of God's revelation was a continuous one. It was a slowly unfolding one that told us more and more about God. God first revealed to his people his creative powers then his moral demands and his position of, as the judge as he sent the flood to destroy the world. He then revealed that he's a covenant maker as he made covenants with Noah, then with Abraham. And then soon after that, he showed that despite his judgment, he would always keep for himself a remnant of his people. And so what you see across the Old Testament is a slowly unfolding revelation about who God is. And what he's like. God didn't say all that there was to say about himself at one point in one time, but he spoke in bits and pieces at various times through different means events, prophets, individuals, history. But not so anymore. In these last days, God has spoken his final word. Have a look at verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, it's not that what the Old Testament has, says is, is less worthy, of course not, but rather it's that it is a promise, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And so don't harden your hearts, listen to the Word of God spoken in Jesus. See, in Jesus we have everything we need to know. In Jesus we know everything that we need to know. 
And then what the passage does is it expands on Jesus, this final word, and just how good he is. It gives us seven different things about him. We'll just briefly touch on each of them. That's in verses 2 to 3. So firstly, here's the son, verse 2. But did you notice what it says? Both here and in verse 5. Jesus is not a son. We get to be sons of God. But rather, he is his son, that is, God's son. And even more clearly in verse 5, he is my son. See, no one else gets to be called my son by God, only Jesus. Secondly, he's also the heir, which means that he has full and equal authority. It's a bit like those businesses, you know, you see someone and sons. So I was thinking, imagine if I was to start a business with Levi, I could do this. This is actually a real business uh, that I, I came across one time. So that is an actual business, Ollie and Levi. Uh, so I went and made sure I got a photo outside of that. I'm holding Levi, who's a lot younger then. That's not Noah, that's Levi. But I could call the business Ollie and Levi, or I could call the business Blythe and Sons. And in a sense, Levi and Noah would have equal kind of ownership, equal authority in it, because we're equal owners. That's a little bit like what's going on here with Jesus as the heir. He has full and equal authority as the owner. Secondly, he's not, uh, thirdly, he's not just the heir, but he's also the maker of the universe. I wonder if you ever looked up at the stars and just felt overwhelmed by how many stars there are. So many, we can barely count them, and yet they are all there because Jesus made them. In fact, this is our, uh, this is our galaxy. We're just a, a spot, a speck in that galaxy, and that galaxy is just a spot or a speck in the universe, one of billions of universes like that. So we are, and we personally are a speck on that earth, so we are a speck on a speck in a speck of the universe. And God made all of that enormous universe. Jesus made it. The fourth thing we're told is that he's the radiance of God's glory. Verse 3. Now that word radiance, is, it's a little bit like, you know, the sun, the heat, and the light coming off the sun. That is the radiance of the sun in the sky. But you cannot separate out the radiance from the sun. They kind of go together. And just like the brilliance of the sun is inseparable from the sun itself, so Jesus' radiance is inseparable from God, because Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. Next, Jesus is the exact representation of God. In Jesus, we know exactly what God is like. Not what he looks like, of course, not his physical representation, but his character and nature. I mean, think about Jesus. In the healings of Jesus, we see God's compassion for those who are suffering. When Jesus commands the wind and the waves, we see God's mighty power over creation. When Jesus was on the cross, we see both God's judgment against sin, but also God's mercy in restoring us. See, do you want to know what God is like? Then look to Jesus. Sixthly, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. See, Jesus wasn't like a clockmaker. He didn't make the world and then just sit it on a shelf, ticking away by itself. No, Jesus is actively sustaining all things today. This second, as you sit here in church right now, Jesus is actively sustaining you, 
this building, this country we're in, this world we're in, if Jesus was to stop for even an instant, everything would implode. And then finally, Jesus is the purifier of sins in his life, death and resurrection. Jesus has washed us clean. All of the shame and humiliation and guilt of sin is washed clean for any who put their trust in Jesus. So that now when God looks on us, he doesn't see someone who is dirty and filthy by sin, but rather someone who is spotless because of Jesus, our purifier. And so that's Jesus. That is the final word of God. He's the son. He's the heir. He's the maker. He's the radiance. He's the representation. He's the sustainer. And he's the purifier. And therefore, he's the only one who has the capacity to sit down. Have a look at verse 3. After Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, later on in Hebrews, we're going to hear about uh, lots of the furniture that's in the tabernacle. And what you'll notice when you hear that is that there are no seats. There's a lampstand, there's a table, there's an altar, there's a curtain, but there is no seat. Why? Well, because priests never sit. The work is never done. But Jesus' work is done. He has dealt with sin once and for all. And so his work is finished and he sits down. That's what we'll see, particularly in Hebrews 10. Do flip with it, flip with me to it. Keep your finger here, but just flip over a couple of chapters later to Hebrews 10. It's an important one. So Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 13. And it says what we've just thought about. Have a look at it. This is what it says. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. See, Jesus can sit down because the work is done. It's a little bit like, you know, you get home from a long day, you sit on the couch, you turn on Netflix, you're sitting down because the work is done for the day. That's what Jesus is doing, sitting down because the work is done. And so that is the Word of God, the final Word of God. I wonder, have you ever wanted to hear from God? Have you ever wished that God would speak directly to you? Well, God has spoken. He's spoken words to rebellious people, words to offer life to those who deserve death. He's spoken to us in His Son. See, sometimes it's easy for us to want something more, to think that God might speak to us through our feelings or through a still, quiet sense. Or heaven forbid, we might even think our, our religious leaders have a special word from God for us. But we don't need any of that because we have something far, far better. God's final, definitive word, His Son. And when we realize that is who Jesus is, that it makes so clear to us, it is worth it. It is worth following him because he's the final word of God. And secondly, it is worth it because Jesus is better than the angels. Have a look at verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. 
Actually, that's almost a theme word for the whole book. Superior appears, I think, 13 times in the book. The whole book's about showing us how much better or more superior Jesus is. But here it tells us he's better than the angels. Now, you might have noticed that it says became, as if at one stage he wasn't better and now he is. We'll actually be thinking about that more next week, so I do come back. I don't want to give too many plot spoilers. But just in short, chapter 2 tells us that Jesus lowered himself, lower than the angels, became a man for our sake, but now has been raised back up again. But come back next week, you'll hear more about that. But the point of our passage is that Jesus is better than the angels. Now, you might be asking yourself, wondering to yourself, well, why angels? Who cares about angels? That's because we don't really think about angels much in our society. But for Jews, they did. In Jewish thought, angels were absolutely central. They were the most exalted of God's creatures. See, angels intervened in the events of history. Angels delivered God's messages. Angels surrounded God's throne. Angels controlled nature. There were recording angels, ministering angels, destroying angels, guardian angels... Their domain was heaven, their character was holy, their role was ambassadorial, their numbers were breathtaking. They'd been given higher knowledge, greater power, superior mobility than men. And in fact, Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7 talks about how the law itself was delivered from angels. See, angels were amazing. And in fact, angels still are amazing. The Bible mentions angels approximately 300 times. It tells us that they're there working, serving God and serving us, verse 14. Angels heralded Jesus' birth. They ministered after his temptation. They announced his resurrection. And they'll accompany him in his return in glory. See, angels are great. The point of this is to not make us think less of angels but rather to think more of Jesus, because Jesus is better than the angels. And so that's why in verses 5 to 13, we're given seven Old Testament quotes from Psalms, Deuteronomy to Samuel. We're given an avalanche of texts, because that's what the rabbis did when they were giving their, their sermons. And each one of them essentially says the same thing. It tells us Jesus isn't some better version of angels, but rather he is the son, far superior to the angels. Now, because we're limited for time, and because they all say essentially the same thing, or they're making essentially the same point, we're just going to focus on one of the seven quotes we're given, which is verse 13, that's from Psalm 110. And did you know Psalm 110 is the most referenced Old Testament passage in the New Testament? There are 27 either direct quotes or indirect references to Psalm 110 in the New Testament, including around 12 in the book of Hebrews. So it is an important psalm. But let's have a look at it, verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? See, God never said anything of that to the angels because none of them were on par with God. And yet, Jesus is... Jesus can sit at the right hand of God in the position of honour. Um, I think we still have this kind of concept of a position of honour, even today. Think about weddings. 
At a wedding, when you get to the reception, there'll often be a big banquet table up the front, and sitting in the middle of that will be the happy couple, the bride and the groom, on their wedding day. But then who's sitting next to them, on the right and the left? It's usually the maid of honour and the groom's the best man. See, those two, the maid of honour and the best man, they get the special seat on that day, the special seat sitting next to the happy couple as they celebrate. In a sense, it's a way for the the married couple to give some honour to them, to say, hey, we value your friendship enough that you can sit in this special seat. And it's a little bit the same in biblical times. Kings would often throw banquets and getting to sit at the king's table, at the head of everyone, next to the king, was a tremendous honour. It's the king saying, you are special and worthy of sitting here at my side. And God says that to Jesus. He tells him, you are worthy. Sit at my right hand. He never said that to any angel, because no angel is worthy of that. Only Jesus, because Jesus is far better than the angels. We see a similar thing with the second part. God will make Jesus' enemies his footstool. Now, ancient kings often portrayed themselves as placing their feet on their vanquished enemies as a way of showing dominance, as a way of saying, well, you are so defeated that I can put my smelly, stinky, sweaty feet on top of you. And God loves and values Jesus so much that he'll do that for Jesus, that he'll defeat Jesus' enemies to such a degree that they are in complete and utter humiliation and submission. God never said that to the angels. He never said to the angels, well, who are your enemies? Let me defeat them so much that you can put your feet on them. He didn't say that to any of them, only to his son, only for Jesus, because Jesus is far better than the angels. And the six other Old Testament quotes make essentially that same point. Jesus is far better than the angels. He's the son the angels worship. He's the king the angels serve. He's the creator, the angels admire. He's the Lord, the angels acclaim. All of that isn't to make us think lowly of angels, not at all. Angels are spectacular, powerful servants of God. But however great they are, Jesus is incomparably better. It's not just the case of good and better. Angels are good and Jesus is better. No, no, no. This is good and the best. It's like if someone has a master's degree in science, that is good. But if someone has a PhD in science, that is better. But then Albert Einstein, that is the best. Good, better, best. And Jesus is the best of Albert Einstein, times a million. Angels are good, but Jesus is the best. And so then, how could we go back to our old ways? If we're following the best there is, how can we go back? And when we realize that, it shows us. It is worth it. It is worth following Jesus. And so at the start, we did ask that question, is it worth it? Is it worth being a Christian? And Hebrews 1 makes so clear to us, it is worth it. Because Jesus is the final word of God. And it is worth it. Because Jesus is better than the angels. And so then, what are we to do in response Well, we can answer that by looking to the conjunction. 
Uh, one well-known Bible teacher I know of uh, often says one of the keys to understanding biblical texts is to look to the conjunctions, that is the joining words, the linking words. Did you notice it in our passage? It's chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, have a look, chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. We have to pay careful attention so that we do not drift away. Because if you drift, you've got a problem. Because if you drift, you're drifting away to something inferior. You're neglecting this great salvation that is on offer in Jesus. Now, this is actually the first of the five warning passages in Hebrews. There are five warnings across the book that warn against drifting, that warn against falling away. For the Christians here, the Christians of Jewish descent, they had to be careful not to drift away from Jesus and back to Judaism, back to the synagogue and the temple. But I suspect that's unlikely to be our danger. So what's ours then? What might we be tempted to drift towards? Maybe it's the drift towards acceptable liberalism. I think that's perhaps the prevailing uh, nature of our culture. You can believe what you want to believe, everyone can believe what everyone wants to believe, and they are all equally right, equally valid. That's the viewpoint. How does that manifest itself in our Christian life? I wonder whether it's the temptation to take away the sting of sin. We We just don't want to talk about that. It might offend someone. So we trivialize sin and how offensive our lives are to God. We wouldn't imagine telling our friends or our family that they are helpless before God or that they're hell-bound. See, beware the drift to liberalism. But also, I think, beware the drift to legalism. See, rather than rejoicing that Jesus has purified us on the cross, instead, we start to judge our status with God not on the basis of the purification that Jesus has given us, but rather on the number of ways we serve or the amount of money we give or the number of people we've invited to church or the number of chapters we've read in the Bible. Now, of course, they're all good things, but they have nothing to do with our purity before God. Jesus is the only place to look for rescue. Friends, beware the drift to legalism. And finally, beware the drift to disenchanted tiredness. I wonder, do you feel tired and worn out? Do you feel like you're so busy and all of the Christian stuff is just extra stuff on top? Don't you find it is actually so, so easy to get exhausted in the Christian life? We get exhausted serving, we get exhausted forgiving others, we get exhausted fighting the devil and his schemes. Well, friends, beware that. Beware that slow drift of motivation that comes because we're so bone-tired, we're so tired, that we forget to preach the gospel to ourselves. We forget to invest in our personal relationship with God. See, beware the drift of disenchanted tiredness. What's the solution? It's Jesus. Look to Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus. Keeping tethered to Jesus is the solution to drifting. 
at right, the start of the year, the staff team went on a, a bonding day to a high ropes course. And here's us at the start. That's us at the start of it. And as someone who's massively afraid of heights, uh, let me tell you, it's a horrifying morning. And I'll show you, if you zoom in, you can probably see tears going down my eyes. But here's us at the end. And you can see just the relieved looks, the relieved looks on all of our faces as we've survived. We've survived the high ropes course. But what they do is they put you in that, those harnesses you can see there. Then before you lift yourself off the ground, before you take a step off the ground that's got hooks on it, you need to hook yourself onto this big metal cord that goes the whole way around the course. In fact, here's, I think this is John. Uh, here's John up in the air and I've circled. You can see that cord that he's hooked to up there. And at no point while you're on the course do you unhook yourself from that cord. It's what kind of keeps you going in the direction you're meant to go. It's what keeps you safe when you fall. It holds you there. And in a sense, that is a little bit what Jesus is like. He's the cord that keeps us safe. He's the cord we have to keep tethered to. If we don't, then we're in danger of drifting. Drifting towards liberalism. Drifting towards legalism. Drifting towards disenchanted tiredness. Or drifting towards something else. See, that is why we need to look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus, the one who's the final word of God and the one who's better than the angels. And so today, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I wonder whether that's what you're wondering. Well, if you are, then this passage is a wonderful tonic for your soul as it sets your eyes again on Jesus, the one who's far superior to all other ways. Are you struggling? Are you doubting? Are you tired? Or however you're feeling today, set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus and do not look back because he is worth it. I'm going to pray thank God for that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is superior to all others. Thank you that he's your final word. And if we want to know what you are like, we simply need to look to Jesus. Thank you that in him you've revealed who you are and what your nature and character is. We thank you as well that he's far superior to everything else. Thirteen times we're told in this book he's better, he's superior. Thank you that he's better than even the angels who are so mighty, so powerful. Thank you that he's better. Thank you in fact that he's not just better but he is the best. Would you keep us tethered to him? Would you help us keep our eyes on him? Would you help us to keep looking to him so that we may not drift? so that we might stay safe in your arms. Thank you that as we, when we are, when we're tethered to Jesus, thank you for the forgiveness he offers, washed clean in his blood on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.